Well, if you'd like to turn with me, please, in your Bibles to First uh, Peter. Looking at chapter 5 this morning. Coming, to the end, coming right to the end of uh, this first letter of, uh, that Peter wrote to uh, the church. We're reading 1 Peter chapter 5, and I'm just going to read verses 1 through to 11. It reads, So I exhort the elders among you, as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you. And not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded and be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Let's uh, spend just a moment in prayer and then we're going to uh, look at this passage together this morning. Lord, not often we receive um, physical letters these days in the mail. We often send emails or text messages and things like that. But we have here in our hands a letter that was written by the Apostle Peter to the church quite a long time ago, some 2,000 years ago. It's a letter that seeks to encourage them. It seeks to inform them. And it seeks to guide them into your truth. But behind the Apostle Peter we must not forget that it is the work of yourself, that this was not just a letter of Peter to your church, but it was a letter of your, from yourself to your church, your people. And although it was written to a church in a different time, in a faraway place, it's a letter also that was, is written for us in our context today. It is a letter from you to us. Help us to see that today. Help us to delight in the truth of it. 
Help us to delight in the fact that you are a God who cares for us so much that you are willing to speak into our lives through your word. In that we pray that you help us to treasure it. Amen. As I said, Peter's come to the end of his letter and he wants to close this particular letter, particularly by impressing upon his readers um, how they as the church, the people of God, can continue to stand strong and firm in the midst of suffering. And that suffering brought about in a number of different ways, but particularly brought about uh, especially by a world that is growing increasingly hostile to their faith and to their beliefs and subsequently, obviously, to them as individual people. And so it's not hard then to actually translate that across even to our own experience today because aren't we, aren't we God's church living in a culture which is, which is growing continually hostile and opposed to the things of God and his people? Peter... Uh, anyone ever sort of anyone write letters anymore like these sort of letters yeah, anyone write no there isn't too many hands go there's a few yeah there's a few that's good keep it up it's a dying art but you know when you come to the end of the letter you kind of just want to you want to bring it all together don't you and you want to kind of really um, send those, those final sort of you know those best wishes and and uh, and and uh, really sort of communicate to the people you're writing to you know your love for them and your desires for them and that's exactly what Peter is, is, is wanting to do here. He's really, you know, he comes to the end and he says, guys, you know, don't miss this. This is really, really important. In this passage, Peter's pointing out, you know, some of the things that he just wants to, to finally leave in the minds of his readers. And the two things he wants to this morning are the fact that if the church is going to stand strong, if people, the people of God are going to stand strong and firm in their faith, there's a couple of things that they need to keep in mind. First and foremost, the church is going to need godly leaders. And he look, talks about this in verses 1 to uh, 4 of our passage this morning. He says, you know, godly leaders, they're going to play such an important part in the overall well-being and health and effectiveness of the church. And he says, and this, these are the kind of leaders that the church needs. And isn't it interesting that, you know, we, uh, we come to today where we're sort of, you know, coming to the, the, the day where we, we close our nominations for elders for our church and thinking, well, wow, how fitting to be, you know, to be talking about this kind of thing this morning. I wish I could say I was, I was that clever to orchestrate it all so we actually fell on this passage today, you know, and the preaching roster, but honestly, I'm not that clever at all. And if you think I am, you give me way too much credit. But we, even this, we see the hand of God at work in, in our midst, don't we? And praise him for that. Peter wants to to highlight these, these characteristics of godly leaders, the kind of leaders that the church needs back there in Peter's day, but particularly in our day today. The first thing Peter points out is that the godly leaders, they need to have a vital and personal experience of Christ. Peter says, I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you. Peter begins this, letter, this, this chapter by relating his own experience as the basis for all he's going to then go on to, to say in, the, uh, in, in, in this chapter. 
He was a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as one who considered himself a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. In other words, for, for, for Peter, Jesus was his Lord and Saviour. Jesus was, for Peter, the most important person in his life. There was, no one, there was no one else that held that place of importance and of, of, of devotedness in Peter's heart than, than towards Jesus. And it's an incredible challenge, isn't it? You know, we ask ourselves, does, does Jesus have that kind of place in my life and in my heart? The fact that Jesus was Peter's Lord and Saviour through, through you know, Peter putting his faith and trust in him, Peter was then confident that Je through, through Jesus' death and resurrection, it assured him a place in God's glorious eternal kingdom when, when Christ comes again and, and he brings all history to a close and, and all people are judged before God and, 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 and those who, who have put their faith and trust in Christ as Lord will enter into this wonderful glorious eternity with Christ. But those who don't, we are told, the Bible tells us, that we'll go to a Christless eternity of torment and pain and suffering. Peter's, Peter is confident of knowing where he's going and we can have that same confidence as well ourselves today. In the midst of all the trials and all the challenges and all the, the sufferings and the hardships we face, the Bible tells us that if we put our faith and our trust and our hope in Jesus... If Jesus becomes to us that one whom we dearly love beyond, beyond, above, above everything else. If we come to Jesus knowing that you know, our, sin, our sins, we don't deserve the love of God, but, but when we put our faith and hope in Jesus that he was the one who died in our place on the cross, that he was the one who died as the payment for our sin and we put our faith and hope in him, recognizing our need for him and jesus says you are mine and no, i am never going to let you go and you can have a hope and a confidence in your life in the midst of the suffering and hardships of knowing that yes this is only for a short time but remember what's coming remember what's coming reminds me of a bit of a story of uh and i think i've told this to you before of a um a, a lady who uh, who died and uh, on the top of her uh, casket the graveside was placed a, uh, a dessert fork and all these people at the uh, the graves are thinking what on earth is a dessert fork look you know on the uh, on the top of the uh, the casket for and the story was told during that uh, from the uh, from the minister at that particular service he said you know the reason for the fork is this you know, this lady was always told, you know, in her earthly life when they sat down to a meal, to hold on to your fork because the best is still to come. Yeah? Hold on to your fork because the best is still to come. And that needs to be our attitude, folks. We need to remember that the best is still to come. And Peter had this clearly in mind. And he says, you know, this is my experience. I need it to be your experience and I need godly leaders to pass this on to the church. 
Not only does Peter say that he was confident of the, uh, the hope that he had in Jesus Christ, but he calls himself here a witness, that he was a witness of the sufferings of Christ. Of course, in calling himself a witness, Peter was, was inferring then that, that what he was passing on to his, to his readers, to his listeners, was that which he knew from personal experience of following Jesus himself. Peter had walked an incredible journey with Jesus. You know, from, if you read in, in the, early, the early chapters of John's Gospel, he was first of all introduced to Jesus by his brother Andrew. And then, you know, he uh, you know, it, uh, came to a point where, you know, Peter had had a bit to do with Jesus, and it came to a point where Jesus one day is walking along the, the Sea of Galilee, and Peter's there. He was a fisherman by trade. He's there mending his nets, and Jesus comes and he, and, he, and he brings Peter to a crisis point in his life. You know, Peter's had, already had this history with Jesus. He brings him to a crisis point and he says, Come and follow me and I will make you a fisher of men. In other words, Peter, I want to give you a kind of life that you could never have imagined in your wildest dreams. If you will just come and follow me. And throughout the Gospels we read, you know, Peter's journey with Jesus was an up and down journey, wasn't it? You know, he had times of incredible uh, um, victory, spiritual victory you might call. You remember particularly when, uh, you know, Jesus says to his disciples, you know, who do people say that I am? And his disciples say, well, you know, some people say you're John the Baptist, come back from the dead. Some say you're the prophet, Elijah, and that sort of stuff. And then Jesus says, but, but who, who do you say that I am? And Peter blurts out, you are the son of the living God. And Jesus says, blessed are you, Simon or Peter, son of Jonah. For man has not revealed this to you, but only God above has revealed it. This is a spiritual truth, Peter, that you finally understood. And that's amazing. And we praise God for that. But you know what came next? Jesus then says to, his, says to his disciples, I'm actually going to Jerusalem where people are actually going to kill me. And Peter says, over my dead body kind of thing, that was, that was kind of summarising in a very, <laughs> a very Australian way. Peter says, no way, Lord, that's not going to happen. And, Peter says, and Jesus says to Peter, get behind me, Satan. In one minute... He's revealing amazing things that God has revealed to him and the next minute he's being used as a tool of the devil. Peter had a really up and down journey with Jesus and then of course we know of that time where as Jesus is brought before the Jewish ruling council and the, and the Roman occupiers of the day and he's brought on trial, Peter is there in the background and he denies Jesus three times. He denies knowing Jesus at all even though just prior to that he said to Jesus you know I will go with you right to the very end right to your death I'll be faithful and loyal to you and then in the next breath he's denying Christ Peter had this incredible up and down journey with Jesus and we have our up and down journeys with Jesus don't we 
Some days we have these incredible spiritual victories in our life and we feel as though things are going so well in our faith and then the next minute we trip up, we fall down, we, we fall into temptation and sin or we, you know, suffering and hardship gets the better of us and we, and we start to doubt God and that sort of thing. Peter is talking here from personal experience. And he says, you know, leaders in the church, they also need to have this personal witness and testimony about their walk with Jesus and how he has impacted their lives and then pass that on to those whom God has called to shepherd them. Godly leaders, leaders in the church, whether they be elders, pastors, they need to be men who walk with God and whose lives evidence a faith that is real, that is authentic. Now that doesn't mean that we as leaders have to be perfect. Peter wasn't perfect, none of us are. But Jesus just calls us to be real and to look to him as the only one who is perfect. Each and every day, as a pastor of this church, I am so aware of my own weaknesses and failings. And the devil wants to get in my head and convince me that, you know what? You shouldn't be doing this. How on earth can you lead the people of God? And then I've just got to keep looking back at the cross and saying, you know what, Jesus? Yeah, I am so imperfect, but you are perfect. And you, in you, I have forgiveness of sin. And in you is my faith and my confidence and hope, not in myself. And folks, that's got to be each and every one of ours experience. The devil wants to convince us that we are not good enough. The devil wants to get in and convince us that, you know what, is it really worth following God? Because you keep falling, you know, you keep falling time and time and time again. And we've got to keep coming back to the cross, sometimes minute by minute, hour by hour, not just day by day. And we need leaders to continue to remind us of that. Leaders who have a vital and personal experience of Jesus. Because Jesus has called them to shepherd the flock of God that is among us. Godly leaders need to be shepherds. This means having a loving concern for and exercising care over the church, over God's people. And the Bible often refers to God's people as sheep. It's not a particularly flattering kind of picture because sheep are pretty silly kind of animals. They're not particularly good at anything, to be honest with you. God knows that sheep need a shepherd. 
And of course, our chief shepherd, as the passage reminds us here in verse 4, our chief shepherd is Jesus. But Jesus assigns what you might call under-shepherds, if you like, to care for his people. So just as a shepherd, just as, as a shepherd would lead the flock of sheep to, to water and to good pasture and that sort of thing, so godly leaders, elders and pastors of the church are to feed the flock of God from the word of God. God forbid that I would ever, ever stand up here at any time and convey to you and proclaim to you anything other than the word of God. But sadly, in our churches today, we're seeing in too, on too many occasions that it's becoming more not about what the word of God says, but about what the wisdom of man says. And it's no longer calling people to follow God's word, but to follow their feelings or what popular opinion says. The only message that we as leaders have to proclaim and to promote is the word of God and nothing else. And in that... Not only is it a means of building the church up and encouraging the church, but it is also a means of protecting the church from dangers, particularly the danger of false teaching. Because there are so many, again, so many churches in our country and in our world today where what is being proclaimed from pulpits is indeed false teaching that is telling people not to follow God but to follow their own desires or to follow things which the Bible doesn't even say is true. This whole debate we've had in recent times about the whole homosexuality, the issue of sexuality, there have been so many people coming out proclaiming to be Christians saying that, you know what, God doesn't condemn that. Well, I'm sorry, I don't know what Bible they're reading but it's not the one I read. We need to measure everything. And I mean everything by what God's word says. And that means we need to know God's word. And leaders, I impress upon you then your responsibility to know the word of God that you can then communicate that to the flock of God whom God has called you to be shepherds over. But this shepherding ministry is to be done out of love, not because it is either forced upon you or because of any personal gain that you might receive from it. Peter goes on to say, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, and not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Leaders, is that a real desire in your heart to eagerly serve and shepherd the flock of God here, regardless of what it might cost you? That you're not in it for what you can get out of it, about you know, a, a, perhaps a, a place of prominence in the church and for people to look up to you in that regard or for, for any kind of gain that you might get? But do you do it because you simply love God 
And out of love for God, do you love his people? Because ultimately, true godly leadership is marked by self-sacrifice. Looking to serve and to bless others. It's interesting. This week I was kind of reading about the, uh, the All Blacks rugby union team. They're quite a uh, pretty dominant team in uh, terms of world rugby and that sort of stuff. It's really a really interesting fact this week, you know, that um, at the end of their games, after the dressing room, their celebrations, because they win a lot of games apparently, after their celebrations, right at the, you know, when, when all, all the, the, the celebrating and the game and all that sort of thing is all over, you know who cleans up the dressing room afterwards? It's the leaders of the team. It's the leadership group within that team. They set the example. They're willing to make those self-sacrifices in order to show, you know what, this is what true leadership is about. And that brings up the next point. The godly leaders seek to set an example to the church. We see that in verse 3. You know, don't be domineering over those in your charge, but be examples to the flock. The Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11 verse 1, he says, follow me as I imitate Christ. Wow, what a challenge, eh? Would we actually say to the people, would we say to the, the people you know, in this church as leaders, would we say to them, you follow, you follow my example as I seek to follow the example of Christ? Hard words. But remember that it's not about perf- being perfect, but it's actually about just being real. About practising what we preach that our walks will match our talks. And then Peter goes on to say that godly leaders are motivated by the eternal rather than the temporal. Look in verse 4. It says, And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Diligent and faithful service here on earth Jesus promises will issue in an eternal reward. And it is that reward which we need to keep our eyes focused on and it is that reward and that reward alone that we should, as leaders, aspire to. Pleasing Jesus first and foremost. But that's not just for leaders, that's for all of us. Is the greatest desire of our hearts today here this morning about pleasing Jesus first and foremost see shepherding the people of God is a serious responsibility and there is a great reward promised for those who do it faithfully but let me say that we need to keep in mind that God will hold especially leaders accountable for the ministry they exercise amongst his people Hebrews 13, 17 says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Anyone wanting to be a leader in God's church 
should read these words and literally tremble that God will hold them to account. In fact, God had some very stern words for the leaders who did not look after his people properly. Jeremiah 23 and verse 2, God says through the prophet, Therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, concerning the shepherds, the leaders who care for my people, you have scattered my flock and have driven them away and you have not attended to them. Because God, these leaders in that particular day were more interested in themselves and their own gain and their own, you know, their own comfort and that sort of stuff instead of looking after God's people and having them first. And God says, Behold, I will attend to you for your evil deeds. I will attend to you. I will hold you to account. you desire to be a leader in the church of God can I say that the privilege is incredible there is a great sense of joy and a great sense of yeah a great I just a great sense of privilege in that But there is a great sense of responsibility, a very deep responsibility. And I pray that all of our leaders in our church, right the way through all of our ministries, will hold that thought deep in their hearts. Well, having addressed the leaders, Peter shifts his focus then to the, to the whole church, leaders and, 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 uh, and, and non-leaders alike in verses 5 to 11. And he says, you know, if you're going to be a strong and resilient church, you're going to have to be a church. You're going to have to need to be a people who practice humility, watchfulness and hopefulness. Humility we see in verses 5 through to 7 where he writes, Humble yourselves therefore, sorry, beg your pardon, in verse 5, Likewise you who are younger, and he's not just speaking about younger in age, but we might be younger in spiritual maturity, or, or just basically those who actually haven't got that same office of leader within the church. So he's, he's really encompassing all of us. You who are younger, he says, be subject to the elders, to your leaders, and clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Now, Peter speaks here of submission, first and foremost, to church leaders. He's already spoken of submission to, to civil authorities in 1 Peter 2, verses 13 and 14. He's spoken of submission to employers, that we're to, to uh, you know, uh, respect our, those over us in our employment in 1 Peter 2, 18. And he also speaks about submission and how that works out in the marriage and in home life in 1 Peter 3. But then he goes on to say here that, it, you know, that you submit into, in, into these areas and how much more important it is to submit under the leadership that, that God has appointed within his people, within the church. Humility means that we will be willing to, to submit. And submission is always, first and foremost, an act of... Of submission to Christ our submission has always got to be done as 
a submission to Christ first and then all this submission to all these other people after that. And if our submission to Christ is right, you know what? All the rest of that will all just fall into place naturally. We submit to leaders out of our submission to Jesus. Now, when Peter says here, clothe yourselves with humility, it kind of carries with it this, this image of, of putting on a garment or an apron, if you like. And I, I just wonder whether or not as Peter's writing this, or through Silvanus, he's writing this, he says, I wonder if, if he has in mind here the image of, of Jesus in that upper room. Remember that Jesus, he's sitting down to this, this last meal with his disciples, and before they actually eat, what does Jesus do? We're told in John 13 that he gets up from the table... He takes off his outer garments and he actually puts around himself a towel. And then he proceeds to wash the feet of all his disciples, including the feet of Judas, who would betray him. You know, that Jewish culture, in the first century Jewish culture, it was the job of the lowest slave in the house to wash the feet of the guests. And Jesus himself was willing to take the role of the lowest slave in order to wash the feet of his disciples. Are we ourselves willing to take the place of the lowest of the low in order to serve our Lord and to serve his people? Humility is primarily an attitude of our hearts. It's the attitude of one who is willingly and gladly ready to put the needs of others before their own and is happy to do the most menial of tasks going. There's no thought of personal rights or recognition we're told about the kind of humility and submission we'd exercise. In Paul writes in Philippians 2, 5 to 11, speaking of Jesus who, who left all of the glory of heaven to come and to, to live on this earth. To suffer all the shame and indignation and ridicule and, and hurt and, and suffering that he, that he would endure in order that we might be blessed. That's our example in humility. And in order to, to add more weight to this, Peter then quotes from Proverbs chapter 3, verse 34, where he says, you know, God himself opposes the proud, the opposite of humility, but gives grace to the humble. See, when we're proud, we set ourselves up in opposition to God, and that's not good, is it? We don't want to be enemies of God. We don't want to be people whom God is opposed against, do we? Now, it's not easy to submit and humble ourselves, but we are told here that God himself will give us the grace if our hearts are first and foremost willing to submit to him. Because not only are we to be humble towards one another, but we are told that we need to humble ourselves under God's mighty hand in verse 6. Remember, this, the, Peter's writing this in the context of the church enduring in, in a, uh, quite a, a deal of suffering. And he says, you know, when we encounter suffering in our lives and hardship, the first thing to do is it's easy to doubt God. It's easy to doubt his power. 
you know, his control over our circumstances. And most importantly, it's easy to doubt his love towards us when we think then that we know better than God and that is pride. We need to keep in mind what Peter's been writing through this whole letter, that the suffering we will face in this life is part of God's sovereign purposes for us, to test us, to affirm the genuineness of our faith, to refine us and to glorify himself in us and through us, to reveal his grace and his power at work in our lives. You know, the key to God's purposes being achieved in us, in our suffering, is to first and foremost humble ourselves beneath his mighty hand, to be content to walk the road that God has laid out for us and then to cast all our anxieties on him because there will be many anxieties on that road, won't there? But when those anxieties come, we're urged to cast them all, to throw them, literally throw them on God with the confidence of knowing that we can do that because he is a God who deeply cares for us. He cares for us. In other words, we entrust ourselves to God, always being reminded of the fact that our Heavenly Father is neither unaware nor unconcerned about what we are going through and we are told that he will indeed lift us up, he will exalt us at the proper time, at the perfect time, at the right time, God's timing. Satan himself would have us believe that suffering is evidence, of God, is evidence that God is against us. And so that's why we need to, to remember the next point, and that is we need to be watchful. We see that in verses 8 through to 9. The mind of a believer needs to be geared towards godly thinking. It's, that's what it means to be sober-minded. We need to have, we need to always assess life and all that we experience in, in this life, we need to assess it through the lens of God's word and of God's character. We need to understand that as God's children, yes, we, will ha we do have an enemy. An enemy that seeks to destroy us by any means possible. That enemy is the devil. And Jesus speaks of the devil as the ruler of this world. But, but he, we need to see that behind all of the, the, the philosophies and the powers that are opposed to God in our world today. Paul writes about it in Ephesians 6 where he says, We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Whenever we see anything, you know, arraigned at God, whether it be, you know, uh, power systems like governments and things like that, whenever we see people aligned against, against God and against his people, we need to see behind that the work of the devil. And to be on our guard, to be spiritually alert to the dangers of sin and temptation and to know that we have an enemy who is wanting to use our suffering in particular as a tool of undermining our faith and trust in God and so we Peter encourages us here that we need to resist the devil and the way we do that is by standing firm in our faith 
by holding fast to the Word of God, by holding fast to what we understand of the character of God as it is revealed to us in the Word of God. And to remember that we're not in this spiritual battle alone, but that all believers throughout the world are enduring the same hardships for the sake of Christ. We need to be humble, we need to be watchful, and we need to be hopeful, verses 10 and 11. Peter says, And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen and establish you. Folks, that is our hope. The hope we have is this, is that the victory has already been won in Jesus Christ. We're not fighting a losing battle, although at times it might seem like it. But Christ himself has defeated the power of Satan on the cross and the day is coming when the battle will ultimately be over. But right now we experience the, I guess we're experiencing the final death throes, if you like, of Satan and his kingdom. It's a bit like our sort of watching you know, some of these World War II movies. You know, in, in World War II, when, uh, when Germany was sort of, right, you know, sort of starting to, uh, to de- was in decline and the Allies were starting to gain the upper hand, they were invade, you know, going into France and, and, uh, and places like that and Belgium and those countries that the Germany invaded. They were going in in these pockets and they were basically liberating these, these, these places town by town. And as they went into each town, they would strike these, these forces of opposition, you know, these, these, uh, these German soldiers soldiers who were, uh, who, who were still sort of keen to fight the war. And they would come in and they would, they would uh, liberate these towns who had lived under the German oppression and rule and they, announcing, and they announced peace and freedom to these people. That's how we've got to view how we live our lives today. The victory's already been won, but there's still all these skirmishes that are going on. And we go about just continuing to proclaim the the good news of, of God, the good news of Jesus Christ, that he can liberate us from sin, from the power of Satan in our lives and give us a hope, a hope of a new and eternal kingdom. And yeah, we'll we'll still suffer for a little while. And we'll suffer due to the effects of sin and opposition to uh, to God and his his ways. But we need to keep this in mind, that just as Christ's suffering led to his glory, God wants to do the same in us. He wants to use our suffering to bring about glory for us and for himself. You know, we know in our minds, don't we, that nothing worthwhile comes easy. Isn't that the case? Nothing, nothing really worthwhile and significant ever comes easy, does it? It's not just put into our laps. You know, diamonds are only formed through intense pressure. Gold and silver, the pure, you know, pure gold and silver, is only brought about through the refining fire of the furnace. The pearl only comes about through the constant irritation of the grain of sand. For the mature follower of Jesus Christ, they are only fashioned on the road marked with suffering, as our Saviour was. But behind it all, we need to keep in mind the master craftsman, the God of all grace, 
the one who truly reigns over all things now and forever. Peter says to him, be dominion forever and ever. As God's people, God's eye and his heart is fixed on us. He's fixed on you in your, in your personal circumstances today, no matter what they are. If you put your faith and trust in Jesus, God's gaze and his heart is fixed on you as his treasured child, his treasured possession. He has redeemed you through the precious blood of his son. He was willing to give himself for you. Don't you think he's, he's wanting you know, the best for you for the rest of your, you know, your life here and for eternity? If he's done all that for us already, his purposes for you are good. And the question we have to ask ourselves today is this. Will we trust him? Will you trust him? Will I trust him? If you humble yourself beneath his mighty hand, he will exalt you at the proper time. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning, just as we come to the end of that letter in First Peter, that uh, we're reminded of the fact that your care and your, you know, your eye and your heart is indeed fixed upon your people. Because through them, Lord, you want to show your glory and your majesty and your goodness and your grace, your holiness, your love, your faithfulness, your steadfast love. Help us to be people today and always who are willing to walk that road marked with suffering because we know of the glorious riches it can bring about in us and through us for the sake of our Saviour, Jesus Christ. Amen. I'm going to share around the communion table as we close our service today. I want to invite the stewards just to come forward. This table is for those who have put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Jesus welcomes everyone to his table, but we've got to come on his terms. Being invited to this table this morning means that we are the treasured children of God. But it speaks of the cost that was paid in order for us to receive that blessing. It speaks of the cost that Jesus would go through in order to serve us and bless us. And in that, it speaks to us today of the journey that he's called each and every one of us to. And as we partake of these elements afresh this morning, I want to invite you to eat of the bread, hold the cup that we might drink together, but as you, as you reflect, as you eat the bread, as you reflect on these elements, would you reflect this morning on, on that path that God has called you to?
and how you're walking that path with him right now. And if there's a need for you to confess some stuff before God, I invite you to do that during this time. Remember, God's not looking for perfect people. He's looking for people who put their hope and trust first and foremost in Jesus. And we're going to be real about that and real about following him. Let's pray. Lord, as we receive these elements this morning, help us in our own hearts be honest before you today and help us to remember that we are called to walk in the footsteps of our Saviour. But we remember where those footsteps lead us. Although they lead us through perhaps the, the dark valley of the shadow of death, through suffering and hardship, it leads us to the eternal glory forever and ever with you. We praise you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. feel the world is broken we do do you feel the shadows deepen we do do you know that all the dark won't stop the light from getting through we do do you wish that you could see it all made new? We do. Is all creation groaning? It is. Is a new creation coming? It is. Is the glory of the Lord to be the light within our midst? It is. Is it good that we remind ourselves of this? It is. Is anyone worthy? Is anyone whole? Is anyone able to break the seal and open the scroll? The Lion of Judah, who conquered the grave. He is David's root and the Lamb who died to ransom the slave. Is he worthy? Is he worthy of all blessing and honor and glory? Is he worthy of this? He is. Does the Father truly love us? 
he does does a spirit move among us he does and does jesus our messiah hold forever those he loves he does does our god intend to dwell again with us he does Is anyone worthy? Is anyone whole? Is anyone able to break the seal and open the scroll? The Lion of Judah, who conquered the grave. He is David's root and the Lamb who died to ransom the slave. From every people and tribe, from every nation and tongue, he has made us a kingdom and priests to God to reign with the Son. Is he worthy? Is he worthy of a blessing and honor and glory? Is he worthy? Is he worthy, is he worthy of this? He is, he is, is he worthy, is he He